Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Socially distanced, masks on against a blue June sky, the nine city council members stood on a raised platform in Minneapolis's Powderhorn Park. Affixed to the front of the stage in large white letters were two words, defund police. The city councillors pledged to do just that. Less than two weeks earlier, on May 25, 2020, George Floyd had been murdered by a Minneapolis police officer. It was a hasty pledge, one the city council didn't keep. The past three years have, however, seen a raft of attempted reforms to America's police. I'm John Prideau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how has American policing changed since George Floyd's murder? There have been lots of attempts at improving America's police forces in the past three years. Reform-minded activists argue that any changes are cosmetic and point out that police killings have risen. Many cops think that reforms have been too sweeping, that they've been prevented from doing their jobs and that crime has risen as a result. What's really happened to American policing since 2020? And what can be done to fix the problems that remain? With me this week to discuss policing in America and how much has changed over the past three years are Charlotte Howard in New York and coming to us from a different part of the state, the Economist's in-house policing expert, Mr. John Fasman. Fasman, how are you? It's nice to have you back. It's nice to be back. I am very well. The news this week is that my younger son passed an important rite of passage and he broke a bone doing something foolish, reckless and completely unnecessary. Um, and so that has taken up a bunch of time this week. Do you feel very proud as a father? I do feel kind of proud, actually. I did it. My brother certainly did it. My sister never did it. I feel like this is the first of many. We'll be on a first-name basis with our orthopedist in two years' time. Charlotte, how are things your end? Any broken bones? No broken bones, but my toddler did get hold of my phone on Monday evening and started calling people, including various professional contacts, Bob Cohen, the publisher of The Economist, and John Fasman. So... I think those conversations were as productive as many that you and I have, John Fasman, but I was sorry to interrupt your evening. Well, from all the contacts in your phone, I think she chose pretty well to call Bob and, and John. In other news in America this week, the former president, Donald Trump, was indicted on federal crimes. That's the first time that's ever happened to a former president of the United States. We're not having an episode about that this week because we think we talk about Donald Trump and the Republican Party quite a lot on the podcast. We will be covering the ongoing 
trials when we have something that we think is you know, particularly insightful to say. But there'll be no more mention of Donald Trump in this week's episode. This is one we've been planning for a little while. The Economist has written and campaigned on criminal justice in America for a long time. And one of our principal authors on this subject is our own John Fasman. John's been back to Minneapolis to look at what's changed in that city and to talk to people about what's changed more broadly in America over the past three years. John, before we start, can you lay out something of the scale of police reform in America since George Floyd's murder? Yeah. So there have been some notable failures. Federal police reform didn't pass. Cory Booker and Tim Scott, who were leading the negotiations for their respective parties, couldn't reach an agreement on qualified immunity and on the role of police unions. So that fell apart. There have been significant reforms in various cities around the country, but there's been no sweeping federal reform. Joe Biden in 2022 issued an executive order that banned chokeholds for federal policing and that incentivized the collection of better data. But I think the biggest change is sort of broadly cultural. There's a different set of expectations around policing now. And I think that's true both for people in general and for police. Police expect that they will be filmed in the course of doing their duties. I think they have been in the past, but it's sort of an expectation now. There's an expectation that that the blue wall of silence isn't going to quite work the way it has worked before. So the ground has really shifted. It hasn't shifted as much as some activists want, and I think it's probably shifted more than some police officers want. But the sort of general set of expectations around policing aren't what they were in 2019. And we're going to hear from some reformers, some police officers, some other folks in this episode. Where are we going to start? So we're going to start with activists who've been pushing for police reform in Minneapolis for a very long time. And normally it's just the same group of us sitting there on the corner holding our signs. Um, But this was thousands of people, which was very new. Emma Peterson had attended plenty of protests against police violence. But the ones that followed the murder of George Floyd were different. It wasn't new, this kind of violence, and we knew how to react as our organization. What was surprising was how many other people reacted. In a low brick building decorated with a mural of a huge blue tree, just over a mile from where George Floyd was killed, I'm talking to Emma and two of her colleagues. Tell me your name, what you do, and and where we are right now. Paul Bossman, I'm chief counsel for CUAPB. My name is Emma Peterson, uh, and I'm a volunteer with CUAPB as well. I'm uh, Dave Bicking, B as in boy, I-C-K-I-N-G. I I work with uh, Communities United Against Police Brutality, and uh, we're sitting here, three of us, to be interviewed by you. CUAPB is a campaign group that's been pushing for police reform in Minneapolis for more than 20 years. They say they've seen some progress in the past few years. They're happy with the idea of more social workers responding to incidents, although they have some qualms with how that practice actually works. They say the police have been more open with people following an incident of police violence. But mostly, Dave explains, they're frustrated. Yeah, there's some things, a few things where we've gotten some improvements. I'd say all in all, the situation may be worse now than the time George Floyd was killed. And you don't think the culture of the police has changed at all? Absolutely not. And I'd agree. I don't think it uh, is getting any better. I would agree that it's probably getting worse. They point out correctly that police killed more people across America in each of the two full years since Floyd's death. And, says Paul, Minneapolis's city council hasn't delivered on the promises it made. I think overall you have to say that 
there has been no real motion and change, and the, the verbiage about change has to be taken as insincere. Yeah, this idea of defund the police, I don't think they ever meant it, and they certainly didn't carry it out when it comes to the actual budgets. I just felt so defeated in that moment. And I was just sitting in my backyard crying. Elliot Payne was elected to the city council in 2021. It was George Floyd's death that motivated him to run. He's trying to change the system from the inside. That's proving to be quite a challenge. Our police union has negotiated this 70-30 split where at least 70% of the police department needs to be rank-and-file patrol. So you can only have a maximum amount of 30% investigators or other types of roles within the police department of the sworn force. If you have that ratio in place and the Federation negotiated the staffing minimum in the charter, that means that you have a lot more structural reasons to have a larger police force. The city has appointed a new police oversight board led by civilians. But Councilman Payne thinks it's a missed opportunity. We have a state law that limits the authority of civilian oversight. So we can't have civilian oversight that can make statements of uh, fact or or findings of fact. They can't issue subpoenas. They can't issue discipline. Uh, So we have a lot of structural barriers around what it would take to truly reform our department. I suspect Payne speaks for a lot of people frustrated at the slow pace of police reform over the past few years. But changing an institution is always hard. Reformers need to either take down the institution or win its trust. Once the fervor of the defund the police movement subsided, it became clear that police forces like Minneapolis's aren't going anywhere. CUAPB, Elliot Payne, and others seeking change will only achieve it if they work with the institution they're railing against. So, John... Quite a lot of discontent from the activists you spoke to in Minneapolis there. At the time, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, we on the podcast talked a bit about the cries to defund the police, which was a terrible political slogan and very bad public policy, I think we all agreed. And I remember at the time you saying, if you speak to the activists, that's not actually what they mean. You know, they adopted this slogan, but it's not quite what they want. What do they actually want now? How would they like the police department in Minneapolis and other cities in America to change? I think broadly, and I'm speaking broadly now, not just talking about CUAPB, but other reformers I've, I've been speaking with, the basic push is for more accountability, and in many cases for restricting the number of police-civilian interactions on the theory that those interactions can often go bad. And so you've had a push in a lot of cities to send social workers or mental health professionals out to people who are in crisis. This is a good thing. And I think it's important to note that police broadly think it's a good thing. Even, you know, very conservative officers who I'm friendly with, who I've spoken with, all say, we're not trained to do this. We need to send in professionals to do this. And so that has happened. I think where it's fallen down is over things like qualified immunity, which is a sort of judicial doctrine that makes it very hard for individuals to sue police officers for violations of civil rights. Now, the rationale for qualified immunity is a good one. You want to protect the police from frivolous lawsuits, but it has been used to sort of give the police far too broad a shield. And I think almost everyone realizes that it is far too broad a shield. But on the broader question that I was talking about before, sort of cultural expectations around policing, accountability, I think you need to look at the 
brutal beating and killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis that happened at the beginning of the year. There were five officers who were caught assaulting him on January 7th. Then on January 8th, those five officers were, were fired. And by the end of the month, they'd all been brought up on very serious charges. I suspect that would not have happened four years ago. And that's not the result of any legislation that's passed. That's the result of city leaders in Memphis realizing that they needed to speak to a very different set of expectations that people have around police, that they need to show the public that they took this sort of event very seriously. And they did that, not again, not because the law required them to do it, but because they understood politically they had to. John, one of the things that I have found interesting in recent months in Minneapolis, and I'd love to ask you about is the role of legal settlements. So there was, as you know, this legal settlement between the city and the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, which had previously found that the Minneapolis Police Department had engaged in racially discriminatory practices and hadn't punished officers for misconduct. And that had some prescriptions, some legally binding, right, legally binding prescriptions for uh, for the police department and the city. And then there's another investigation ongoing from the Justice Department that could have a consent degree that imposes its own legal requirements. And both of those struck me as really interesting because there's, of course, the political response to George Floyd. And then there is the way that different legal settlements are overlaid on the running of city government. And so how does that play out? How big a deal was that settlement that was announced recently between the city and the Department of Human Rights? Do you think it will have a real impact on a day-to-day basis in a way that either pleases activists or helps the police in their endeavor? What's the outcome of this? Yeah, and we're expecting the results of that Justice Department investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department soon. Maybe even by the time listeners hear this, we're recording on Thursday. I think it's likely to come out on Friday. And as to that settlement between the city and the Minnesota Department of Human Rights, the tangible outcome is that there's some new laws restricting when force can be used, and it stops the police from using the smell of marijuana as a pretext for searching people. The broader point, I think, is that consent decrees are one of the main vehicles for reforming local departments. And a consent decree, of course, is when the Justice Department investigates a police department and finds what they call a pattern and practice of violating constitutional rights. They go to the department and say, basically, we can sue you for this, or we can enter into a decree, work out some reforms together, have a federal monitor overseeing what you do, and achieve reforms that way. And you have departments that have used this to reform in a really good way. I'm thinking in particular of Los Angeles, of Seattle. Cleveland is now coming out the back of a consent decree. The Trump administration stopped this practice. The Biden administration has resumed it. But I think there's only been maybe one or two. That's a very useful tool. It's useful principally because policing in America is so decentralized. The Biden administration's executive order applies to federal police. But there are 15,000, more or less, state and local law enforcement agencies, all of which answer to different people, are run by different entities. And so the consent decree is a tool that the federal government, or in the case of Minneapolis, a pressure group can use to encourage local departments to reform. I think, John Fassman, one thing that's so important to bear in mind is that there is a there there, that Black people year after year consistently comprise about a quarter or more of those killed by police, despite being only 12% of the broader population. So there's a reason why activists are paying attention to this. The challenge is how to reform police departments while still fulfilling the basic mandate that they seek to serve. Yes, and that's something we'll be discussing in a moment when we hear from a couple of veteran Minneapolis detectives. 
But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't have one already. It'll give you full access to all of our journalism. And it's because of our subscribers that we can do all the reporting and writing and podcasting that we do. So thank you to everyone who already subscribes. And thank you too, if you're thinking about it. Charlotte and John, what have you particularly enjoyed from our recent coverage? I loved our colleague Gavantika Chilkoti's piece on the Indian diaspora. I thought it was original, brilliant, really well reported, told me something about the world I didn't know before. Just just a terrific story. Our cover story this week is on the relationship between America and India, and it is excellent in substance, but also it is completely overshadowed by a hysterical cover image, I think. I'll let you take a look at it yourselves. Yeah, our cover designers are the best, and it's a particularly good one. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes accompanying this episode in your podcast app. So, John, we've heard from some activists. Now we're going to hear from some police officers. Can you tell us a little bit about them before we hear from them? Yeah, I sat down and spoke with two veteran Minneapolis homicide investigators, Richard Zimmerman and Chris Thompson. And you're going to hear Detective Zimmerman's voice first. A lot of police officers left our department. I'm sure you've heard that. So we don't have, uh, what are we down, like 300 cops, I think. And so we don't have the, the police force that we had prior to George Floyd. And some of these kids that are involved in these carjacking, shootings, robberies, murder, know that. And they know that patrol is really has to deal with 911 calls. It's difficult for them to do preventive stuff, and uh, they take advantage of it. Do you guys feel the shortage on your job? And if so, how does it affect what you guys do? Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot less proactive work out there that goes on. And I don't know if that's out of the fear of cops getting tied up and fired or end up in prison. Um, there's been a lot of changes in our policies, too, that prevent us from doing our jobs out on the street, I'm talking. Um, what kind of changes? What kind of policies? Uh, I'll give you an example. I had a, a case, um, it was a homicide case down on in the area south end of North Minneapolis. The guy got shot. But anyway, the, the day after that homicide, we went down to that area to look for some surveillance video. And uh, we got approached by a, a neighborhood guy. He said, I think there's a couple guys that went in the store next door, and I think they have guns on them. So we got a um, squad to help us out. Uh, Two-person squad comes down. Me and my partner go in there and Asked to talk to these kids and said, hey, somebody said you had a gun on you. We pat them down. Both of them had guns on them with extended magazines. Me and the one cop get in a little wrestling match on the ground, and we get them handcuffed. Nothing nothing happens. There was nothing super physical. But the cop's biggest worry in that thing was that at some time during this wrestling match, he thought his hand had gone up around kind of by the guy's neck. And now after the George Floyd thing and this no, no choke policy, and they've kind of made it like – you know, any any time you put your your hands near a person's neck, it's almost like a critical incident, and the BCA will come in and investigate. The cops, this cop was worried about losing his job, and it shouldn't be like that. I mean, if you if you're dealing with somebody with a gun, it should be um, shouldn't shouldn't that shouldn't enter your mind. You, you shouldn't have to think about that. His fear was that if the video showed him with his hand at some point near his neck, and he could lose his job, he could end up in prison. I mean, you know, the whole thing with George Floyd that that's a that's a separate thing, but. Sometimes when stuff like that happens, they make these sweeping changes that, that affect our job. We were told and taught when I came on from 1990 that you control somebody's head, you control the body. If you're fighting with somebody for your life and you now people, they don't want to put your hands anywhere near somebody's neck because 
of the changes that they made in our policy and these these reforms, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, stuff like that that it, it's not good for for police. Do you do you feel like this sort of suspicion is on you in a way that it wasn't before that you don't get the benefit of the doubt as you did before? I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. And that that goes you know probably I don't see the street as much, but you know, in our job, there's um, when we're bringing cases forward with the advent of all this surveillance video and um, stuff. It's like now, if if that doesn't exist, it didn't happen. You know what I'm saying? They they've used uh, surveillance video and, and and cell phone stuff and cell phone data so much that now, if if you don't have it, there's less chance that they'll charge the case. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, sometimes these murders happen and there's no video, you know. That's still the case. They cast doubt on the investigator or the investigation uh, without that video. Yeah. The, the homicide rate has stayed high here. It hasn't, it's, it's higher than it was pre-George Floyd. What do you think you need to do to get the homicide rate down? Is it a question of hiring more officers? Is it a question of approaching what you do differently? I... I don't know if I have that answer. I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I think more officers would help, um, less restrictions on those officers so they can do their job, I think would help. But there are some other areas. Even if we had more cops, the school board in Minneapolis, what was it, within a week after George Floyd, got rid of the cops in the schools, you know? And we used to have a liaison with the kids. The kids trusted that cop and and. The cop would uh, let us know if a kid was, you know, running around with a gun or, or you know, that type of stuff, and so we could do some preventive stuff. But the school boards uh, in Minneapolis just got rid of us. Does the job feel different to you guys now than it did three or four years ago than it did pre-George Floyd? I had to testify in Chauvin's trial, and there were some cops that are retired now that that I was friends with prior to that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, for instance, I, I went to a breakfast place in Minneapolis, and there's a couple old retired guys I'd worked with in the 80s and, and uh, part of the 90s. And so I walked up to them to, just to say hi and see how things are going, and they didn't want to talk to me because I had testified. And, you know, the, the thing is, they, you know, they don't realize or they don't care, I suppose. You get a subpoena, you have to testify, you know. Let me ask one last really broad question. How have the last three years felt two guys from in here what's the what do you think of the best and worst things that have that have come out of this long conversation we've been having you know i I don't really see anything positive that's come out of it um in my job i don't see a whole lot of the negative but you know the negative is that the cops work in the long hours the cops that have left whether retiring or uh, ptsd that have left us kind of shorthanded um I, i think that's the negative the cops that are here, a lot of them just don't want to do proactive work because of the restraints that are put on them. And for fear of, um, you know, losing their job, losing their freedom, yeah, I, I think the job has changed in a negative way is that I think a lot of cops are just in the survival mode right now. What kind of proactive work? You mentioned the wrestling match was a fear of punishment. What kind of proactive work do people fear to be punished? Proactive work means that you're going to um, go out there and do a lot of traffic stops. If you're not going call to call, when I came on, you were looking for stolen cars. You were pulling over cars for broken taillights or whatever. Now they put restrictions on that. You can't stop cars for certain reasons, expired tabs. You can't stop them for that. But 
they would do proactive work, and sometimes that that got you bigger stuff. It got you the drugs. It got you people with felony warrants and stuff like that. Now, I guess it's my my thought that a lot of these cops don't want to do that because you're putting yourself in a circumstance. You might get in a fight with that guy. Then you might have to maybe hit him one too many times as he's trying to reach for your gun, and the jury says, yeah, he's he was struck him too many times. He's going to go to prison or something like that. It's kind of a broad example, but a lot of cops, I don't think, want to put themselves um, in jeopardy of losing their jobs. Charlotte, I find it really interesting there, particularly hearing from Detective Thompson about how his job has changed, how fearful he is of, as he said, putting his hands anywhere near the neck of a suspect, even somebody who's armed. I'm sure those weren't the intentions behind the reforms that have swept through American policing over the past three years. My reading of the motivation is that people were particularly exercised about the killings of unarmed black men in America, like George Floyd, um, like you know Jordan Neely on the subway in New York recently. But you know the effect of the changes, it seems, have made policing of other incidents where where police officers are dealing with armed people harder as well. And I think there is a way in which the debate here gets a bit skewed because we, you know, rightly focus on the worst in the media, perhaps focus on the worst civil rights abuses, which are those murders or killings of unarmed black men. Reformers then solve for that problem, right? Whereas in fact, those don't represent anything like the majority of police killings in America. I was looking at the Washington Post's good database on this and fewer than 2% of police killings fall into that category in America. So I I don't know about you, but listening to those interviews, it seemed to me that something's kind of gone a bit wrong here. Some good intentions have gone awry. What did you make of the interviews? There was a lot in that interview that I found really interesting. Two things that I would draw out. Similar to you, I agree that there are times when there are policies that are passed, and then what really matters, obviously, is the implementation. And so one could talk about that in any number of ways because there's there's so many ways that implementation could go wrong. Ideally, you'd have many fewer instances of police misconduct. One thing that John Fassman alluded to earlier is there are also just fewer police, period. And the numbers on this are so striking. Between April 1st of 2020 and March 31st of 2021, resignations rose by 18 percent and retirements by 45 percent year on year. And that's the latest period for which data are available, but there are signs that that trend has continued. And so the question then is, how do you have really effective policing in departments that are strained? And some of the cultural questions that the interview raised, I think, sound fuzzy, but aren't to be discounted. The retired police officers who refused to speak with him because he had testified in the trial, and even his response to that, which was slightly defensive, that he had to testify because there was a subpoena. You need to have police departments where, as John Fasman says, this is often the case, but there needs to be a broad culture, not just among leadership or not just among senior members of a department, but a, a broad understanding that policing needs to change in order to be most effective. And that is something that needs to permeate a given department. That's that's a policy question, but it's also a cultural one, and it doesn't seem like we're there. Yeah, I agree. This is fundamentally not a problem that gets solved through legislation passed against the police's wishes, and it's not a problem that gets solved by police departments refusing to entertain any thought of reform. 
this is a long, ongoing shift, and I think we're really just at the beginning of it. But I think it involves a different set of understandings about what people should expect from police, what police should expect from communities that they police. I think it's really important that you get as many people policing a neighborhood that come from that neighborhood as possible. But there's a bedrock fact about policing that you can't wish away, and that is that it is often not nice. It's often coercive. It's often violent, especially in a place with as many guns in America. You're just going to have more people killed by police here than you will have in other developed countries because there are more guns here. There are more situations that turn deadly. And so there's a difference between what happened to George Floyd, what happened to Eric Garner, and what Detective Thompson was describing, which is getting your hands close to someone's neck while you're wrestling with them, trying to get a gun taken away from them. Police who put their hands near someone's neck in that situation shouldn't have to fear for their jobs. By the same token, African-American men who encounter police shouldn't have to fear for their lives with every encounter. What's important for police, you know, if you take a step back, what do you want police to be doing? You want them to catch bad guys and not hurt innocent people. And police are not that great at the latter, but also not that good at the former. So if you look at the catching bad guys part, nationally, just over half of all murders go unsolved. And in countries including South Korea and Japan, the figures are very different. So in those two countries, 95 percent, more than 95 percent of murders are solved. The figure in Sweden is 80 percent, 87 percent in Switzerland. And the obvious retort to that is that America is a very different country. Nevertheless, that's a huge gap in the rate at which police actually do solve murders. And I think worth dwelling on that, that as we consider reform, it's a two-part task, right? It's about really cracking down on police misconduct and better enabling police to do what it is they're supposed to. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from some people who are trying to pursue that type of reform in American policing. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So, John, now we're going to hear from some city politicians and from the chief of police in Minneapolis. And all of these people are trying to get the balance right here between reforming the police department in a way that prevents the kinds of violations of civil rights that seem far too common and making the police an effective force that solves crime and making Minneapolis's police department an attractive place to work. Who are we going to hear from first? First, we'll hear from Latricia Vita. She's a city council member who represents Ward 4, which is in the far north of the city. It's especially beset by crime. And she told me what people there want from their police force. I would say my constituents want more police, but they want good police. You know, we have a charter number, I believe it's 888, that under the Minnesota state charter that we're supposed to have. And my constituents want that to be our starting place. But they want good officers. They want officers from the community. They want people who care about this community just as much as they do. You know, they don't want people to be over police, but they want people to be held accountable for crimes that are committed in our neighborhoods. They want their kids 
kids to be able to come outside and be safe. They want to walk to the grocery store. What about the number of officers? I know the department has a shortage. How do you fix that and how worried are you about it? I've been worried about it a lot because the numbers are just not like the number of recruits isn't happening. We fix it by incentivizing. Like we have to be a competitive police department. 20 years ago, Minneapolis was the place to be. We have to show people that we're going to support them as a city enterprise if they come here and serve as officers. We have to hold those same officers accountable and say, if you come here, this is the way we want you to police in our city. Starting, like, for me, policing begins with community and then the tactical stuff comes after. So I think we lead the charge in showing people, like, what community is over here and how police play a role in that, not what police are and how community plays a role in that, right? (laughs) You know what I'm saying, though? Like, I think what happens is policing is such an old profession that the police come in the community and they say what they're going to do. The community doesn't do it. And we have an opportunity to reverse that because we have so fewer officers. We have an opportunity for police to show up at football games for our young people and basketball games and to see them in a different way than just policing them or, you know, when they have a bad day in the neighborhood or whatever. You know what I mean? But it is it's an opportunity for us in this community to say this is how you're going to police us. It's okay to hold us accountable if we're doing something wrong. There's a system for that. But this is like how we treat this. Minneapolis's mayor, Jacob Fry, shared his vision for better policing in the city. I'm a believer that police officers need to get paid more, fired more, and trained more. They need to get paid more because we're asking them to do a very difficult job that not a whole lot of people these days want to take on. This is a massive challenge right now uh, to police in this era. uh, And we want the best, most compassionate, most community-minded people to raise their hand and to say, yes, I want to protect and serve. That is a big ask right now. And we need to pay them for their time and this massive challenge that they're taking on. Uh, Second, we need to hold officers accountable when they are not doing what they're charged and being asked to do. And there are a slew of both law changes and policy changes at the city, at the state, even at the federal government that I think need to take place so that officers can be held accountable in full. And finally, we need to give them the necessary training. It's not enough just to put on paper that a policy has changed. We need to provide real simulations and ongoing training so that it is baked into muscle memory what they are supposed to do and what they are not supposed to do. Part of that is officer wellness, recognizing that officers are more likely to make a bad decision when they're tired or they're sick or they're hungry or they're forced to make a split-second decision. And it's a trauma-filled profession where we need to make sure that they're taking care of themselves for the sake of taking care of all of us. And, 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 you know, that's the nuance of these situations that you have to recognize in full. And we've got to be delivering a message that we are going to be the change. You as a police officer, you as a potential recruit, you as a, a kid that is thinking about what profession you want to get into and you are committed to the neighborhood or the city that you live, you should see becoming a police officer is not just a viable choice but one where you can have the greatest impact on the people that you know and love. I mean, and I truly believe that. If you really, really care, if you want to make a difference, if you want to be the change in this police department, uh, 
becoming a Minneapolis police officer is an excellent decision, and we want you to take that leap with us. Uh, so like I said, I'm optimistic. Our numbers are not where they need to be. We've had significant attrition over the last couple of years for a variety of different reasons. And at the same time, we're starting to really see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we're starting to create both a reality and a narrative of where we want this police department to go. And finally, I wanted to hear from Brian O'Hara, who took over as Minneapolis chief of police last November. I do think there needs to be a significant investment financially uh, in, in the salaries of our officers and in, 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 you know, signing bonuses for getting people in the door. And I think that will ultimately help uh, get us where we need to be. But I think the most important issue is people are starting to see uh, that the perception of this agency is not reality and that this is an opportunity to be someplace that matters, uh, that you can really, really, truly have an impact on community and, and, and what policing in this country should be. Let's say you get that huge financial influx that police need, a big investment from state and city. You have enough money to pay decent salaries, good signing bonuses. After that, how do you spend the money? I guess the question is, is there a way that policing as a job should be rethought? Do you need to focus more, like beef up your investigations team? Do you need better community outreach? If you had a, a functionally limitless sum of money, what would you spend it on? Yeah. Well, certainly here, yeah, the, the, the most basic issue here is bodies. We just need bodies. And we need to give some relief to all the cops that are here doing multiple tasks, working all these long hours, the investigators and so on. But I think what gets lost um, here and what gets lost anywhere, just because, again, it's it's a triage situation, is a lot of that engagement, is a lot of that non-law enforcement stuff. And I think it's terrible. You know, we have to do that uh, because we have to kind of just, you know, go to the basics. But I think particularly engagement around young people is just needed so much more today than ever before because that's kind of like the future of what not just our city but what our profession will be. And we have to remember, as a cop, mom and dad don't call me over to the front porch to talk about how well the marriage is going, right? Like, we're getting called into people's worst moments in their lives. And uh, I have seen it over the course of my career. Some neighborhoods you go to, uh, that type of stuff is all young people see. And it reinforces like a really, really bad and negative perception that people carry with them as they get older. And I think we have to be very intentional about trying to change that uh, and about being uh, better at engaging because I, I do think the only way to drive down crime and violence is to have a better sense of legitimacy and better trust in communities. So people simply tell us who's doing what and what's going on before it happens. And those two things really go hand in hand, so we can't be focused only on the law enforcement part and holding people accountable just because we're short-staffed. We have to be very intentional around doing the engagement piece because that's where the long-term win is. John, those were all really interesting. Let's start with Latricia Vitor making that point that in one of the tougher neighborhoods in Minneapolis, which has a crime problem, they want more police officers, not fewer. Yeah, that's not unusual. That's something I've heard all the time. People who live in these neighborhoods, as opposed to activists who come from outside, 
almost uniformly say they want better police. They want more accountable police. They want police they can trust. I don't know if you guys have read Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi, but it's one of the best books ever written about American policing. You have this really damning portrait of simultaneous over and under policing in tough neighborhoods in America, where you have officers who perhaps spend too much time penalizing quality of life crimes and too little time investigating serious crimes and keeping the neighborhoods safe. And so I think what people want in those neighborhoods, like the ones that Councilwoman Vita represents, is a accountable, effective police, not less police. Part of that, though, John, is that it used to be that there was a consensus that pursuing quality of life crimes led to a reduction in overall violent crime. So this was the broken windows theory of the 1990s. Has that now just been discredited? Yes, I think it has been broadly discredited. In New York, as you know, stop and frisk was done unconstitutionally. Police will tell you that it was an effective way of getting guns off the streets, but it came at too high a cost to people who live in the city. And so we haven't quite found that balance yet. You want police to have leverage. You don't want to take leverage away from the police. You don't want to limit the conditions under which police can do their jobs. But you want police to use that leverage wisely and not make life terrible for members of the community who didn't do anything. And we haven't quite figured out how to get that balance right yet. Yeah, two things that I'm struck by from the interviews is one that in Minneapolis itself, which we haven't discussed yet, there was a question put to voters on whether to replace the Minneapolis Police Department with a new Department of Public Safety that had a more comprehensive public health approach and eliminated the mandatory minimum of police officers that was in the city's charter. That was roundly rejected. And of course, the problem not now is not having too many police, but not enough. But in, in listening to the mayor's prescription, which is to have better police officers who are paid more and fired more, I'm struck by how that could be, uh, that philosophy could be extended across civil service and across government employees, right? I mean, the issue with teachers, as an example, has always been that you really want to attract great teachers and have the authority to fire those that aren't good. And so that really requires a whole-scale reform, both in the way that we pay for, uh, for, for public employees, whether it's police or teachers, or you could give other examples, and in the structure with which they're government, including doing away with qualified immunity. In all the the laws that have been passed over the past three years, doing away with qualified immunity has not been a focus. And I'm wondering, John, whether you think that will change or why you think that is. First of all, I think you're absolutely right on, on all those counts, on, on extending that mandate across the civil service. I think that leads to some really difficult, uncomfortable questions about the role of public unions in this process, about whether they may do more harm than good in the long run. And so what I suspect has happened is that police unions deeply oppose any changes to public immunity. That's part of what tanked the federal police legislation that Senators Scott and Booker tried to work out two years ago. And so I think you have to tackle that problem to tackle the qualified immunity problem. So perhaps there's a role for the federal government there, right? If you could increase the salaries of police officers in high crime areas, that might even things out a bit. I think one of the things that's so dissatisfying about this debate is that there has been a lot of activity. There has been a lot of legislation passed. There are these consent decrees. And there isn't sufficient progress either perceived by activists or from police. But I do think the only positive trend of the past three years, whether you agree with the legislation that's been passed or not, is that there is real attention to this. And cities view this as a crisis and that they need to get right. Um, there were a string of bills passed in the 1990s that there's been ample debate about their efficacy. But those bills also came out of crisis. And I think what you want now is to have 
real concerted effort by public policymakers and by activists to continue paying attention to this to get it right, because it's very, very obvious that the current state of affairs is unsustainable. Okay, this is a subject I'm sure we're going to come back to. John, thank you for all your brilliant reporting this week. Before you go, you know the drill. It's quiz time. Earlier in the episode, we heard from Detective Richard Zimmerman of the Minneapolis PD. There was, of course, another famous R. Zimmerman from Minnesota, certain Bob Dylan, who was born in Duluth. So this week's quiz is Dylan-themed. We asked ChatGPT to write the lyrics to a Bob Dylan song, and I want you to tell me whether the following are actual lyrics by Bob Dylan, winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature, or if they were generated by an AI. There are six of these, so we're going to do it quickfire. Example one. Oh, the winds of change are blowing strong, whispering secrets that have been too long gone. GPT. I I am at a disadvantage here because I tune out when I hear Bob Dylan because I find his voice really annoying. More annoying than Neil Young or less? No, it's less annoying than Neil Young. Neil Young Hmm. is the single most annoying of this era. Okay, so Phasma's going with an AI for that one and you're going with, I don't care. Fasman My husband is right. knows Bob Dylan really well, and I wish I could call a friend. That would be the solution to this yeah. quiz. Can we put your phone on the table. We can't have you calling Dan for this. Okay, so that was indeed an AI. Uh, example two. To know that some other man is holding you tight, it hurts me all over, it doesn't seem right. That sounds AI too. Yeah, that does sound AI-ish. That one I would have got. That's, that is Bob Dylan. It's from Nashville Skyline. Ugh. Tell me that it isn't true. It's a great song. Okay, example three. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. That's from Desolation Row, my favorite Bob Dylan song. Nailed it. It is indeed Desolation Row. So, Fasman, you're, you're two for three so far. Charlotte, I think you're essentially not playing this. Okay, next one. <laughs> Through the tangled streets and in the midnight rain, I search for something I can't explain. AI? That's just a stab. That one was an AI. Yep. You're doing a great job of spotting these. If anyone needs a sort of Dylan verification bot, then just call John Fasman. Okay, next one. So swiftly the sun sets in the sky, you rise up and say goodbye to no one. That's Dylan. I don't know what song that's from, but the goodbye and no one is a nice, right? That is indeed Dylan. It's from Joker Man from the album Infidels, which I'm not familiar with. Last one. In this Bob Dylan song, the story is told of a restless spirit that'll never grow old. That one might be that, too easy. That's an, an AI. Yeah. Well done, Charlotte. You were, I thought you'd gone off to do some email, but it's nice to know you're, you were listening. Um, okay, the result of that quiz is familiar. It's a phasma victory by a significant margin. Yeah, but in a broader sense, Charlotte's I don't care answer was, mm. was sort of broadly right. Yeah, I That's think you so get the point for that. so generous, John Fasman. You're so generous with me with these quizzes. I do want to just acknowledge that whatever Dylan knowledge I have is inferior to and entirely due to one of my oldest and dearest friends, Jason Zinneman, who now writes for the New York Times, but who I've known for 30 or more years and is a Dylan obsessive. That's sort of nominative determinism at work, right? Yeah. We'll tweet out some of those fake Dylan lyrics if you want to play at home. Okay. That's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks, John. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. (laughs) 